0: Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to the tennis podcast.
1: Well, hello, and welcome to the U.S. Open and the tennis podcast. My name is David Law. I'm here for BBC Radio Five Live. Joining me this week, of course, will be Catherine Whittaker, who's here for Eurosports and of course, Simon Briggs from The Telegraph, because we are produced in association with The Telegraph, and Simon and myself currently stand in the player garden, where all the players are doing their interviews just a couple of days before the start of the 2016 US Open, and it is a hive of activity right now. It is funny, isn't it, watching the way it all operates, Simon? You know, we're we're two days away. It's kind of the phony war, isn't it? You've got all these players who are going to be beating the living daylights out of each other in a couple of days' time. They're all rubbing shoulders in the sunshine. They're all doing their interviews, probably trying to keep their voices down so that their their prospective opponents can't hear how their chances are looking and all the rest of it. And the broadcaster's challenge is to probably
2: fade out the sound of the planes going overhead from the Guardia Airport. We're right underneath the flight path here, but uh, it's pretty sweltering out here as well. So most of the players are trying to compete to see
1: who can get to the umbrellas first. It, it always used to be a lot worse, actually, the flight path here. Um, if you go back maybe 20 years ago, in the, certainly in the 90s, I, I remember the flight path was such that matches were just getting drowned out and then eventually uh the mayor of new york changed the flight path so that it didn't collide with the us open anymore and uh, they also built the arthur Ashe stadium so that the smell of hot dogs and hamburgers didn't drift over the center court during the action so it's, it's all changed a bit but some things don't change and certainly the excitement i think ahead of the final grand slam tournaments of the year is as palpable as ever I and mean, is that how it feels to you how long you've been here I got here on um,
2: Tuesday, I think I came from Rio, um, and that was a pretty intense couple of weeks as well, so uh, we came into New York and there's a slight sense of the demolition derby about it because we went to the press day on Friday and and there was uh, one wrist injury after the other with uh, Novak Djokovic followed by Rafael Nadal and then Serena Williams talking about her shoulder falling off. Um, so it, it, I've just written a piece. I'm assuming that's a slight exaggeration. I think. Yeah, I think it's, it is still attached to her body. But uh, nobody sounded sounded altogether like they were completely ready. Of course, that could be a little bit of uh, uh, short selling uh, on their part, just to make sure that they, they're not uh, talking themselves up, rather rather be underestimated going in than the other way round. Um, Andy Murray even we said to him, "Isn't this an opportunity?" And he was sort of replying, "Well." I'm pretty tired too, you guys. Uh, just because I don't have a a headline injury doesn't mean that I'm not feeling it, feeling the pace after fifty odd matches and mm-hmm. that unbelievable Olympic final a couple of weeks ago. So, so everyone's slightly. Uh, gathering their energies for the last big push, I guess.
1: It is one of those strange years, isn't it? Every four years, we have the Olympics, and it changes the dynamic, the the order of things in the summertime, a gap between t- Toronto or Montreal and, and Cincinnati. That's what's happened here. We've had Murray missing Toronto, then playing the Olympics in Cincinnati. We've had Djokovic missing out on Cincinnati, and obviously, as you say, those concerns over his wrist injury. I mean, we we really don't know how any of these players are going to look, do we, when things start on Monday? Yeah, that's, that's the unpredictability of the US Open. It has been the, the, the biggest
2: um, tournament for surprises of late. Marin Cilic winning in 2014. We were just talking to Juan Martín del Potro. It's a while ago now, but uh, he won here in 2009. It, it, it is um, perhaps the, uh, the, the, the the tournament of the surprise. And this fortnight in particular, you feel that... It really is pretty open. The women's in particular, if, if, if Serena is not able to serve at, at 100%, uh, and Kerber's pushing for the number one ranking, but there's so many players who could win the women's title, I think.
1: Yeah, the, 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 there are a lot of players, aren't there? It feels it feels open, I mean, but the funny thing is, if you were to go back a year ago, it didn't look open at all in the women's draw. You thought Serena's going to win this title, she's going to re- complete the calendar slam, and that didn't happen. So for all we know, she could turn up yeah. this week and, and be fine. And I mean, like at Wimbledon, suddenly it'll all click.
2: Yeah, and then she has actually been her most consistent self in New York in recent years. That was uh, the first time she'd lost in, in four, I think, when she went down to Roberta Vinci here last year in what was probably the, the shock result of the year. Uh, and then Flavia Panetta uh, took over and, and uh, won the title. I've seen her around. But she's not actually in, in, in contention anymore. It well, is one, strange, though, one, one of the many um, women's winners of the last four or five years who have pretty much quit as soon as they got their biggest prize of their career.
1: Yeah, that was a strange um, conclusion to the title last year, wasn't it? She wins the title and basically announces her retirement on the spot in the ceremony. I mean, that was uh, certainly memorable, but um, it was... I'd almost forgotten about her until I saw her at the, at the sort of draw ceremony a, a couple of days ago. And, and, and that draw in particular, who do you think on the men's side has come out looking good? Do you think it is clearly weighted in favour of one of the players?
2: Yeah, I think for the, for the third slam in a row, I think Andy's had a, had a really good draw. Um, he's got Dimitrov, Nishikori on his, on his horizon, uh, Vavrinka in the semi-final, theoretically. Um, and you know Rafa and Novak are both in the top half, and 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 so are some of the more the more dangerous floaters, including Del Potro, um, Kirios on the bottom half. That that that's sort of one an added ingredient. Um, but I think he'd have to beat Vavrinka for Murray to play him. So even then, that that's, that's uh, almost a, a win-win situation. So yeah, Andy's he's, he's had some tough draws, um, maybe going back a couple of years, but this summer. And this year, he's obviously reached three slam finals coming in here. That's another step that if he gets here to the final, he'll be the I think, the fifth man to have done it in the open era. Roger twice, Novak once and Rod Laver once. So
1: that's testament to his consistency. And he's had a slightly better draw this year. Yeah, sometimes you need a little bit of luck to go with it, don't you? Now, we know that you always pick Andy Murray to win the title. So is that the, the same this time?
2: I guess, yeah. I, I mean, uh, I spoke to uh, Mats Willander, um this week and he said that he, he, he rates Andy as his favourite and he's never done that before for a slam title.
1: The book is marginally calling it for Djokovic yeah. still. They're, they're, they're still just that little bit hesitant, aren't they, to, to, to take into account even the Murray form, even the, the Djokovic suggestions of injury. I mean, how do you back against the guy? But the, I think if you were to maybe poll... The majority of journalists here, I think the, the, the greater weight of them, even the non-British journalists, would probably be picking Murray right now. Yeah, actually,
2: I didn't realise it was that close in the bookies. I, I always assume that Novak has a big lead there by pure um, consistency of achievement. Uh, here comes Catherine, having having dealt with Dan Evans
1: summarily. Uh, you, 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 you put him to shame, I hope. Hello Catherine we, i tell you what we've already talked about so far as Catherine Whitaker from Eurosport joins us hot-footing it from her interview with Dan Evans who's one of the eight British players in the main draw I, I can barely keep count um, and uh, Simon's been talking about uh, about Andy Murray's chances. He's obviously picking him. He's given us an update on on Novak Djokovic. So what we'll do right now is we'll just change Simon Briggs for Catherine Whitaker because Simon's off to go and do another bit of work. You'll read all about his interview with Juan Martín Del Potro in Monday's Telegraph, and uh, of course he'll be making regular appearances with us here on the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with the Telegraph. And uh, and Catherine, thankfully, it's you and me. Again, and 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 Simon Briggs um, has gone.
3: He's off to enjoy the air conditioning, isn't he? That's what he's doing.
1: (laughs) Yes, I arrived in a coat. I've just arrived from the airport, and I arrived in a coat. And I mean, Catherine's not exactly unused to giving me looks of disdain, but the one she greeted me with just about ten minutes ago really topped the lot. How, How are you, Catherine? How have your last couple of days been? You've been here. For Eurosport, uh, I imagine doing lots of interviews in in this incredible area that is set up for exactly that purpose. It's a sort of there's artificial grass laid down just outside where the players get their rackets strung, and the, and the gymnasium and the locker rooms, and there's upstairs to the player lounge. And, and we are surrounded right now. We're standing next to, first of all, a, a sort of smoothie maker and a, and a coffee shop, and and then there are lots of little benches and. Tables And, I mean, there there are dozens of television cameras and players milling around being interviewed.
3: Yeah, this media garden area here at Flushing Meadows is one of the most remarkable places for me on the tennis tour because I remember when I came here to work as a journalist for the first time last year. You know, they're so hot on security here and no, ma'am, you can't go there, no, ma'am, that's forbidden. And I was so surprised at how free and easy it was and it was just, you know... Journalists are just, you know, once you're in, go wherever you like. Yeah, there's 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 all the players' locker rooms. Yeah, you can go there, you can go there, whatever. You know, we were going up to to scope out sh- filming locations at the top of Arthur Ashe Stadium earlier, and it was fine. We were being ushered up, though, just wandering around the most glorious view in tennis, and we could go wherever
1: we wanted. Hey, that's something we haven't talked about, Simon and I, is, is the renovations this year. I mean, I've just come in on the, the, the sort of media shuttle bus um, from Manhattan. It's, a, it's sort of half an hour drive, and then suddenly in the distance, you see the Arthur Ashe Stadium, and yet it looks like something that's come from another planet, because it's got a dome on top of it, a roof on top of it. Plus, is it the grandstand court that's been renovated as well? I mean, that um, looks spectacular.
3: More than reno- Brand new grandstand court brand new I love the design of it I'm going to sound like I'm working for USTA PR now but I think they have done a truly sensational job and we've job.
1: given them a, their fair share of stick over the years yeah, yeah, because exactly. they've deserved it for yeah. quite honestly but you're right I mean they've really pulled their finger out pulled it's, the stops out they've
3: pulled their wallet out as well The roo- I've heard half a, a half a billion dollars have been spent all in all which is no that should do it no insubstantial fee but look it shows it's been done properly the roof is amazing. It's sort of a canopy which sits, so you go up to the top uh, and it still feels open. You're up at the top there, you've still got the breeze, it still feels open air. I can imagine, even with the roof closed, you're still going to. Be able to retain some of the open air feel, which I think is incredible, and the grandstand court. The design of it, it's it's really beautiful. It's really architecturally beautiful. I'm I'm blown away. I think it's great. Well, that's,
1: well, that's great to hear. And and I think they're going to do the, something similar with the Louis Armstrong court in a in a year or two. So this place is is really really going places. I mean, I I, I spoke to Stephen Farrow, our, our tournament director at the Egon Championships, a couple of days ago, who's been here a few days as well, and he was saying that there's lots more permanent seating as well and he, it just feels like that the whole place has had the makeover it's it's needed
3: yeah they've caught up very quickly there is no doubt they were behind and all the other grand slams possibly with the exception of paris but they have enormous spacious issues there and of course they they are building the roof albeit slowly compared to here you know they have they realized perhaps a little too late that they were falling behind and boy have they made up for lost time it feels it feels like they've done this work incredibly quickly it's like it it's like i mean maybe that's just how things are in new york i was 2 days ago i was in the taxi from the airport and the new york skyline was coming into view and i realized there was an enormous skyscraper bigger than the empire state building that's just been knocked up in a year what it literally was not there the the biggest building in new york was not there 12 months ago they've built it in a year i understand apartments in there are a minimum of 20 million dollars so
1: oh, we'll be all right and if we maybe we put together get, get a tennis podcast pad in the richest building in the world eh? one day get one maybe we could we'd probably get one brick i reckon <laughs> if we if we put it together um Catherine before we, we start talking draws and press conferences and all the interviews you've been doing just to, uh, one other thing that you'll see if you do happen to be coming to the US Open over the next uh, the next couple of weeks uh, you'll have the opportunity to buy you may remember this from our French Open preview show we were talking about racket magazine the the print only tennis magazine that they were sponsoring us they're sponsoring us again just for our preview show here as well but you know we we just want to also give them a mention because of the fact that they are out now. They're in print. They're in the on the bookshelves. You can get a copy if you're at the US Open in the bookstore here. I mean, it is a spectacular front cover they've got uh, in this... Premiere edition of of the magazine. They've got Yannick Noah illustrated in there against the the clearly the French Open backdrop in full flow, and uh, it's it's a glorious sight. You'll see lots of of wonderful articles in Racket Magazine. You can get a copy on their website. You can subscribe to the the four issue series for the year on Racket Mag. I should say that's racket spelt correctly with the CQ rather than the Uh, CK. You know, I'm a traditionalist. BBC Uh,
3: journalist David
1: Law. Yeah, so uh, racketmag.com if you want to subscribe, get it delivered straight to you. Wonderful print-only coffee table magazine. You can also get it in uh, various places in New York. There are one or two retailers in New York and can get it. And also in London at uh, Mag Culture on St. John Street if you happen to be in London. But you can also get it get it online racketmag.com and you can get it at the us open Catherine,
3: yeah I, th- I mean i think uh, we're we feel a kinship with what they're doing because you know they're tennis fans they're doing it off their own bat. yes they're hoping to make some money from it but it, it they're doing it out of a love for the game and you know they are they're doing it and that's sort of what we're trying to do with this podcast isn't it so um yeah though we say so ourselves i i think it should be commended
1: Yes, even if they are sponsoring us, we still believe it. Even if, even if they are sponsoring. Us. Anyway, Catherine. So the U.S. Open, the U.S. Open is a bad start. Two days away. I mean, it's it's such an exciting prospect, and there are so many storylines going to unfold over the next couple of weeks. Your immediate response to the draw. Uh, both the men's and the women's. Did, did, did anything really stand out to you? Simon's mentioned that he feels that Andy Murray, for a third slam in the row, has got lucky, in his view, in terms of the, the relative strengths of the, 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 the routes through to the latter stages for the players. The, the thing that really struck me, I think, was that early on, Rafael Nadal's draw looked all right, and then suddenly, if he were to get to the quarters, he'd be looking at Raonic, and then the semis, maybe Djokovic, and then the final Murray.
3: Well, what struck me on the men's side was looking through the draw and trying to think, who's got, who's got the awful draw here? Who's got all the big guys that are in form and that you don't want to face? And then I suddenly realised that it's not that kind of tournament this time. There aren't, you know, the big four that, you know, you don't want to be drawn in the same side of the draw as two of them. That's, you know, it's obviously worse than having only to face one of them. No one, you know, the stats about no one's ever beaten all three of them en route to winning a title all that sort of thing. That's not the case this tournament. I don't think there's any horror show of a draw out there because everybody, barring mostly Andy Murray, although I suppose you could say there's a bit of a could he be exhausted question mark over him, everybody has a question mark over them. You know, I was really, I really wasn't sure about Novak Djokovic in press yesterday. Certainly not wanting to give much away about that wrist. He won't even say exactly what the injury is I'm sure a certain amount of that is game playing he doesn't want to give away to his opponents what the injury is but certainly I don't think all is 100% there, you know, Stanford... that's
1: certainly what he said, isn't it? He said he said he's trying his best to get to be as close to 100 percent as he can when the sto- when the tournament starts. Now, again, you're, you're quite right. That may he may, he may be absolutely fine for all, for all we know. Why should he tell us every single thing that's going on?
3: But certainly, expectations are being played down to a certain degree. There, that is without question. He has cancelled practices, but then I understand he also stays at a place which has a tennis court. So it's entirely possible that he could be just choosing to practice in private away from prying eyes instead of doing so here at Flushing Meadows. So, I mean, frankly, no one knows, but there, it, that's why it's a big question mark in, in a way there hasn't been previously. And then you look at, with Federer gone, you go down the draw, obviously there's a question mark over Rafael Nadal. The last time we saw him, he was retiring in Cincinnati with not one but two injuries. Stanford Rinker is always an unknown. He could win the tournament or he could crash out first round putting in a horror show performance.
1: You know. uh, and also, my, my pick to have this great run at the US Open is is Marin Cilic. She's, as I said, the other the, 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 in the last show, I, I felt that he would get to the semifinals. Then suddenly, you realise he's in the quarter with Novak Djokovic, who has a 14-0 record against him. Now, I still think Cilic is playing 2014 US Open tennis right now, which could be the match for just about anybody, but he's never beaten Djokovic. He's never... I mean, he has... Come
3: Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription.
1: I'm close at Wimbledon that year. In fact, he, he, he led him two sets to one. But, you know, he usually has his way pretty handily, does Djokovic, with, with Cilic.
3: Yeah, and you know, I hark back to Toronto, which reminded me, you know, those matches: Thomas Burdick against Novak Djokovic, Kay Nishikori against Novak Djokovic, Gael Monfils. How difficult it is, even when you're playing well, even when you're playing better than your opponent, to overcome mental baggage like that. The mental baggage of a 14-0 record is just enormous, I, and I think that could be the decisive factor, even if Marin Cilic were playing. Lights out tennis, and Djokovic is slightly hampered in the way we think he possibly might be. there so, it's disappointing for Chilich.
1: I was also particularly surprised by Djokovic revealing in his press conference that that there were personal reasons at play for him not playing at his best at Wimbledon. I was really surprised whether I mean, regardless of whether it's the case or not. I mean, everybody has personal issues in their life. Usually, though, tennis players don't hint that there are any
3: yeah it was a fantastic question actually from Paul Newman of The Independent that drew that answer out of Djokovic I was, I think everybody in the room was a little bit taken aback but the way the question was phrased sort of I don't know it didn't back him into a corner but he, I think a bit like I've seen so many times with Grigor Dimitrov in press conferences I don't think he intended to be as frank as he ended up being when he opened his mouth to speak it just sort of tumbled out and uh he says whatever it was is now resolved in what way you don't know i mean we, we really don't know any other details but yeah it was a it was a startling moment of, of frankness i suppose
1: yeah we like a bit of candor here on the tennis podcast almost as much as we like uh, a bit of aggro and a pole fault but anyway Catherine won't let me do any of those so uh, we'll just go with candor um in the women's draw, Catherine, uh, I, I managed to get a sneak preview listen of a little interview that Simon has done with uh, Angelique Kerber, uh, which will be in the, the Telegraph on Monday, uh, which was very interesting. Can't give you all the details, obviously, but she she sounds like she's in a good place. I know she, she's had a couple of heartbreakers in terms of on-paper losses in both uh, the Olympics and Cincinnati, but, you know... I'd be surprised if she bombed, you know. Whereas with garbini Magarutha, you get these these extraordinary peaks and then these real troughs and dips, often straight afterwards. You, we're not getting that, really, with, with Kerb. We had a blip, didn't we, in, in the sort of springtime, and she didn't play that well on the clay, apart from Stuttgart. But, you know, she's consistently producing and getting to the latter stages.
3: Yeah, I agree. I've, it would be a real surprise if she bombed in the way that it wasn't, in paris necessarily um yeah she just seems so relaxed i saw her earlier she was doing an interview so our german eurosport counterparts my colleagues i suppose they have on the continent they have quite different sort of editorial guidelines editorial standards they like to do something a bit funky different camera shots she was just sat down on the grass with um matthias the german eurosport presenter they were just doing an interview just sat on the grass here in the media garden like it was sort of a school picnic or something. She could not have looked more chilled out. I saw her wander over for the interview and he was like, oh, we're going to do it sitting down on the grass over there, if that's right. And she was like, OK, yeah, that's fine. I, I mean, can you imagine Serena Williams doing that?
1: <laughs> I don't think... Well, I don't know, actually. I, I, do you know, sometimes I tend to think with some of these players that we, because we don't expect that they will, we don't ask. And I sometimes think if we just chilled out a bit ourselves with them and spoke to them like we would anybody else they'd probably be game for, for all sorts of relaxed settings you know and, and they like a I actually think you know they don't mind a bit of normality these tennis players Yeah. But, I, so uh, you know, I wouldn't mind a picnic right now yeah, now well, that you mentioned it
3: having said that I did just see Barry Flatman of the Times greet Dan Evans with the words how are Villa doing still SH star T <laughs>
1: <laughs> well and, uh, you know, you only have to look up the results. That's all I'm saying. Um, Catherine, you have uh, obviously been here for a couple of days. Um, what is the feeling like this year? I mean, you were here last year when we had all hype around Serena. And she she reached the semis. But, the, you know, the, the, the final had sold out, hadn't it, ahead of the men's. Everybody's thinking calendar slam. Now, she could, she could get something equally in many ways as as significant, maybe not as dramatic in terms of beating Steffi's record, but you know it would still be a major deal ha, ha, what, what, what are you sensing around her right now?
3: I worry about the shoulder, she didn't say anything about it in press but that almost told the story she was very, very it started off a very tetchy press conference there a lot of one word answers, she warmed up a little bit um, she definitely didn 't want to say an awful lot. she said she admitted that you know she does not have the match practice she needs, but hey we 've seen her win Grand slams with zero match practice going in, so that 's not necessarily a decisive factor, but I just got the sense that she had potentially a doubt in her mind that doesn 't mean she 's not going to win the tournament. It just means she 's not as nailed on as she was i do I think there 's pressure I think she wants it desperately. I think she wants to do it here desperately. Um, I don't think it's quite the same pressure as last year. I mean, uh, last year it was everything. It was the defining
1: feature of the tournament. And you saw it in that documentary, didn't you? And we, we then got that, that incredible insight with the camera following her behind the scenes and, and her admitting and showing how much it was all bothering her. I mean, it was an enormous pressure.
3: Yeah, I don't think it's quite that, but I, I think it's a lot. And, uh, you know, we now know how much she feels the pressure so even if it is less she'll still be feeling it um and she's still i mean it's so obvious still even with her being um and and not really wanting to chat to the press she still gave away how much she wants it she still couldn't help herself saying how hungry she is to get this one and to get it here
1: yeah, we're just going to have to keep our voices down a little bit here in the media garden because uh, Pierre Ebert, who's a player who I've learned to pronounce the name of correctly, and therefore I'm doing it with great relish, is just sitting over to, to to my right here. We've got a Kristina Ledenovic as well
3: here. Mixed doubles partner, yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's all sorts of players just just pottering around. We've just had one Martín Del Potro doing interviews that you'll be reading over the next couple of days as well. We don't want to get in the way of these interviews, but equally we're just going to keep talking here on the tennis. Um, so, uh, Catherine, the, the 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 great story from a British perspective, aside from Andy Murray, we've obviously got Joe Conta returning, but but the really great one came yesterday with Laura Robson qualifying for this tournament, a place that she had her her biggest results at, in in my view, four years ago when she she beat Kim Clysters, retired Kim pleister's and and then beat Lenar Na. Um, uh, was it Lina she beat? I can't remember. Yes, it was Lina she beat. And then she eventually went out. But, I mean, you know, uh, Sam Stoser it was who beat her in the end uh, that year. And, I mean, the, I, I, know, I know a number of people that wondered whether she would ever be able to to, to get back on the stage. Now, I know she's only won eight matches in a row. I know these are embryonic stages in her comeback. Um, but I think that she was shuffling around the futures circuit, really, not winning close matches and then suddenly she's won a tournament and now suddenly she's won three in a row and qualified and I think back to Joe Conta a year ago building a run like that now we're in much earlier stages here but I I just think it's it's really heartwarming.
3: Yeah and one of those doubters was me for sure I mean I really doubted her her stomach for for going out to futures events with Nobody watching, no prize money, no attention you know she 's used to having big sponsors and TV cameras on her and 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 people interested in watching her and all of that and I can only imagine how hard it is to go to the exact opposite and be thrashing around in the middle of nowhere um, so uh, yeah i I doubted her stomach for it, and uh, she's she 's really really proved me wrong. I mean the story is amazing that she won that. A USTA event in Philadelphia, or certainly in um, Pennsylvania, uh, and didn't know that that would be enough to get her a wild card into Qualies. Had written off the possibility of getting into Qualies here, went on a Friend holiday with friends in Italy. She she said uh, in her quotes after qualifying yesterday. She she got the call while she was about to climb. She was in Pompeii, climbed Mount Vesuvius, came down Mount Vesuvius, drove her friends back to the villa, and then hopped on a plane to New York and started playing qualies here and is now done. I mean, it's just, it's a great story, but also an indication of how much her mental framework has changed. How much the the references the the touchstones of her career have changed you know she hadn't even contemplated being able to make it into u.s open qualies you know what a different story that is to her being talked about is the next big thing you know so well done her
1: yeah, well done her, and she plays a fellow Brit, one of eight in the uh, in the draws here, both men and women. Plays Naomi Brody in the first round. We'll monitor those matches closely. There's also Heather Watson and of course Dan Evans, who you've just been speaking to, Aljaz Bedene. Uh, we've got Carl Edmund, Heather Watson, uh, and Andy Murray, of course. So it, it really isn't Joe Conta. So it's 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 an amazing lineup for for a country. I know it may not seem very many to, to listeners from the US or France, and, and we have many of those, I'm happy to say, are on the Tennis Podcast. But for someone like me, who came here for the first time 13 years ago, and in that year I went to my first Grand Slam tournament overseas for, um, for, for Five Live, and we had one. British player did, uh, did did the country, and that was Elena Baltacha, um, who uh, who managed to, to get into that draw and, and won a match as well, I seem to recall. But you know. It's, it's a good news story from a British perspective that there are so many of them. I, I don't necessarily think there will be that many in the second round. we will we'll, we'll, we'll have to That's see. That's
3: for sure. There will be one.
1: There will be one. There will be one. But anyway, from a British perspective, it's, it's nice to see. We, you know, we try to keep as objective as we can, but obviously we are uh, British journalists and they are people that will fill our airwaves and, uh, and broadcasts um, and obviously the podcast to a degree as well. So, Catherine... Uh, with a couple of days still to go one, one question I posed on Twitter it's not a pole vault so stop looking at me like that uh, it was an open-ended question about night sessions here at the US Open which, uh, which are what basically got me into the sport night sessions here at the US Open they're, they're, they made me want to work in the sport Jimmy Connors and Aaron crickstein 1991 and all that um, what, what's your favourite night match memory have you got one? Or do you want to have a think about it while well, I, I list a few from our, our listeners? And my word, there are a few of them. Listen to a few of these. Uh, Clara says, the US Open of 2009, the Federer-Djokovic semi-final, the tweener. The atmosphere was amazing. What about this one from Ibudin, who says, uh, the Agassi-Blake match of 2005. That does have to be one of the all-time great night session matches for me uh, we've got uh, we've got here Nemone who says uh, Capriati Enan 2003 semi-final I remember that was my first US Open and uh, yeah, ooh, little anecdote about that one Catherine little anecdote uh, straight after that match I was sent down to uh, the locker room area to see who I could interview and I came across um, Chandler from Friends, who was in the uh, Jennifer Capriati support box. Matthew Perry. He's a
3: handy tennis player. Yeah, right? he
1: was, but well, he wasn't happy to speak to me. <laughs> I tried my best, you know, it wasn't interesting.
3: Is it he greeted him as Chana from Friends?
1: Should I have not done that. Because, <laughs> no, he, he did look at me as though I was a piece of muck which some would argue I am. Um, Agassi Sampras, 2001 night session is a memorable one as well uh, for Nemone. And we've also got uh, Joel, who says, what about the Venus Hingis semi-final of 2000? Pure excitement from start to finish. Could have gone either way. Uh, We've also got Andy Millard who remembers uh, Murray Djokovic 2012 final for obvious reasons he says Uh, of course Murray winning that one in five sets Um, Sporty Barber says Jimmy Connors matches from 1991, pick whichever one you want and I would go along with that, absolutely right. Greg Gaynor uh, remembers Carlos Moyer against Todd Martin, with Martin high-fiving members of the crowd in the front row, only one in five sets. Uh, there was the djokovic federer final of last year, remembers Jonathan Woodrow. Um, we've also got just just a couple more to, to finish off here. We've got Ali, who reminds me of uh, Capriati and the 2003 semi-final with Annan. one of the best matches ever, uh, she says. And and, and actually, my, my post Personal favourite comes from our very own student Matt, who um, who is is, is currently gallifanting around the world, calling it um, uh, student... uh, What what is it? Year Abroad. Year Abroad, abroad, whatever it is. Yeah. Student Matt's doing that, but he's still getting involved in the podcast, I'm happy to say. And he remembers uh, another one of my personal favourites, and I would probably go with this as my favourite. Agassi against Baghdadis, 2006. Agassi's final year. And this is what student Matt says. Cortisone injection, boisterous, raucous crowd, brilliant tennis, career on the line, racket smashing, Comeback, fifth set, cramps, back pain, great respect of the end. It was just awesome. That is what student Matt has to say about things, and 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 I wholeheartedly agree with him.
3: I don't disagree. I have one other entry, possibly a bit random, but it just sprung to my mind, but probably quite a personal memory. I don't know. I think it was 2002 quarterfinals, Andy Roddick. Just breaking onto the scene, Leighton Hewitt was the incumbent world number one, and it went to a fifth set. And you know, I think was it in the visor? I think it was even pre. No,
1: it was pre visor. It was pre visor, and it was it was a great was, rant, wasn't it, from Roddick?
3: It, well, it, I mean, the, the pre HawkEye as well, and the match seemed to turn, inexperienced as Roddick was on the, at the time, by an uh, on an overall by George Diaz, the umpire on the far sideline, which according to inaccurate video replays did look to be a dodgy overall quite frankly uh Roddick went nuts I mean it just had everything it had everything and uh went on to win the tournament and uh, of course Roddick went on to win the tournament as well a couple of years later so all was well no one year later in fact one year later 2003
1: 2003 won the title. Yeah,
3: so uh, yeah, that's the one that jumped out to me. Not necessarily the best one, but just it was just when I was getting really into tennis. It was just when I was staying up through the night to watch tennis on the telly, like the like a proper loser. Um, so, yeah, that's why that one stands out for me.
1: Yeah, well, I've been a loser for at least 10 years before that, so, you know, I win. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, remembering that Roddick rant and, and his determination that, that there should be some video call... Technology, And then you think back to our podcast with him two years ago or whatever it was at the Royal Albert Hall. If you go and have a listen, it's still available on our website to listen to the Andy Roddick show that we had in which he said, yeah, he thinks Hawkeye works really well. It's, it sort of does what it's supposed to, but he thinks tennis should get rid of it <laughs> after all that. <coughs>
3: They're fickle creatures, aren't they, tennis players? As soon as
1: they retire, <laughs> yes. you know, they just think of the aggro and the entertainment that you get from, uh, from not having accurate calls every five minutes. Well, Catherine Whittaker, is there anything else for us to talk about before we, uh, before we, we head off into the sunset and just uh, try and get a, get a last bit of rest in before the US Open gets underway? Uh,
3: loads, probably, but we'd better not peak too soon. <laughs> We've got to do a lot of these over the next fortnight, so let's let's leave some stuff still to be talked oh, just about just
1: quickly who have you interviewed so far for for Eurosport in your in your couple of days here
3: oh it's been a Brittastic couple of days so M- murray just did dan evans he didn't have a whole lot to say maybe he's- <laughs> trying to stay man
1: a few words Catherine Whittaker let his racket do the talking let his
3: racket do the talking and his villa supporting Joe Conta uh, who else Heather Watson was in bubbly mood very bubbly mood yeah she's full of the joys and Kyle Edmund who was um, delightful very nice young man Kyle excellent
1: Excellent. so we're ready now are we we're ready for this US Open to to, to get underway now that I've arrived
3: (laughs) well there's three I've still got to interview three more but we're still trying to track down Alias Bedne who is playing Nick Kerrios and they share a manager, an agent, so that's gonna be interesting. I still need to chat to Naomi Brody, who plays
1: Laura Robson. Uh,
3: Laura Robson. And we need to chat to Laura Robson after her practice tomorrow.
1: That'll so. be interesting, won't it? Let's see what she's got to say. It's a Brit It's a Brit for Catherine Whitaker of Eurosport. I'll be here for BBC Radio 5 Live alongside Russell Fuller. And we'll have, obviously, Simon Briggs from The Telegraph making regular inserts into the tennis podcast. We will be bringing shows to you whenever we can. Can't exactly promise when. But knowing us, the everyday, <laughs> we'll try our best. Uh, but thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you soon.